0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The Epistle Lesson for Good Friday marks a momentous pivot between two ways of understanding and relating to God. In the former way, under what the lesson calls the law, the sacrifice of animals was given as a ritual for restoring peace with God after a person sinned. This was merely provisional, established to embody the costliness of sin by requiring the sinner to offer another living creature in their place. The purpose of this was, in turn, to reveal the horror of sin, to provoke a sober shame for having transgressed, and to stir up the will to seek amendment and reconciliation. The ritual mirrored the visceral and costly mercy of God for Adam and Eve in the garden, as he clothed their nakedness in the skins of creatures who, for their sakes, had to die. Sacrifice covered guilt that a person might go forward and grow into righteousness. This liturgical and ritual action was thus always meant to enable ascetical formation unto true holiness. The sinner was declared righteous so that they might be formed in righteousness and purity of heart under the covenant So that they might enter at last into peace, into the peace of God with God. But this way became an end unto itself. It came to represent a kind of magical thinking, as the blood of animals was continually offered to keep God in check, to keep him happy enough not to lay waste to the people or the lives that they'd carefully carved out for themselves. It was a token of piety, the performance of which became a matter of cultural affiliation and a way of flexing your standing in that culture. But meanwhile, the problem of distance between the real person and the real God remained. The sinner in need of forgiveness and redemption was distant yet from the God who very much wanted To forgive and to redeem. Instead of a doorway into the Lord's peace, the sacrifice became merely a transaction for keeping the peace with God, with an exacting God, with a God who was always threatening the social order. What was left untouched and unredeemed by any of this was the heart of the sinner who essentially paid off God to leave them alone for another year. As such, the begrudging payment of perfunctory affection undermined the very purpose of the covenant, to draw God and humanity together in real love. Over time, this relational distance and feigned penitence resulted in widespread unfaithfulness in Israel, culminating in separation and exile. The story of the garden became the story of Israel. For those who returned from that exile and rebuilt their fractured temple, the ongoing sacrifices of that temple became again an attempt to retrieve that sense of cultural identity and order and normalcy that had suffered years of rupture during captivity. By the time of Jesus, the temple sacrifices had resumed their previous performative character in a spectacular new building, though. But again came the, false, the burden of false hope, a futile anticipation of redemption in a marvelous structure but one in which God no longer lived. Like a lavish vacation for a couple who were on the brink of divorce, the splendor of it all only served to highlight the sad irony that the people's relationship with God was fatally unwell. Yet the animals continued to die in an exercise of ritual meant to appease God and to placate a people by giving them a focal point for their ethnic loyalty as a distraction from the missing heart of the thing. But Christ's sacrifice reveals the poverty of all such sacrifice. Assuming the words of Psalm 40 as the purpose of Jesus' saving mission, The author of Hebrews unveils the heart of genuine sacrifice, quote, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me, end quote. The heart of the true worshiper is the heart of the true lover, who says to the beloved, you did not want just a symbol or a token of my love, you wanted me. You gave me the very thing you wanted me to offer. You gave me myself. This is why the Son of God is the true worshiper, the one who fulfills the covenant. Rather than sending a proxy, he goes himself to perform the Father's will. He does not shirk the immense price of genuine self-giving love. He says, here I am. I've come to do your will. In the crucifixion, Jesus, as perfect man, offers to God the true sacrifice of the heart, himself, his soul and body, in love for God and all his neighbors. He thus does perfect righteousness under the law. On Good Friday, Jesus offers as the Son of God, as God the Son, to God the Father, himself as the one in whom all things were made and in whom all things hold together. The creation is thus restored in Jesus to communion with the Father through the Son in the Spirit, renewing it and opening within it the way of peace left unwalked since that way was rejected in the fall. This is the life that is opened to us this day, as we are joined to Christ's death in baptism by the Spirit. Being united to this perfect worship of the Son, we become partakers of the new life, of the new creation, as this perfect worship and sacrifice are grafted into the very core of our hearts, the source of our existence. Having a new heart means having a new life and because this new heart is the heart of Jesus himself we are made like him to be the children of God out of whom may then flow the good works of genuine love of true sacrifice and righteousness like those of Jesus our Redeemer and now our brother Like those who've gone before us, though, we are constantly tempted by the old ways of righteousness, the old ways of love. We are led astray through visions of an uncostly love that does not demand sacrifice of ourselves, our souls and bodies in its pursuit. We desperately avoid the vulnerability of self-donation, that lays us bare before the one we love, lest they should see us as we are and reject us. This is the terror of shame that we acquired in the fall, the stain of guilt that anxiously feeds that shame and renders us helpless and defenseless. It seems too much to bear before the scrutiny of the one we know beholds all there is to know about us, even that thing. And so we run away from this love and back to the safe distance of the quick fix, the token offering, the proxy sacrifice. For our shame and guilt, we don again the scratchy pelts of cheap loves, shallow intimacies of looking without being looked at. And we fervently try to believe that this is all we really want or need. But the severity and mercy of true sacrifice, of true salvation in Christ's sacrifice, removes from us those animal skins of the fall. And as we endure the barely endurable nakedness of their removal, The Lord graces us with the costly garment of the wedding tunic, made white in the blood of the Savior. The Son of God becomes himself the only covering for the shame and guilt of alienation and sin. Thus, St. Paul exhorts us, clothe yourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. Today, we have to submit to the vulnerability of knowing how much we are loved, even while we crucify the one who loves us. We have to bear the astonishment of doing everything we can to childishly make the Lord just go away, while he does all that he can to draw nearer to us. We try to return to that safe distance where others only see the outline of us, where that place of deepest shame in our lives that even now comes to mind, that that place might always remain hidden. And ultimately, we try to keep God over there as simply the judge who is scrutinizing and critiquing all the time. Because... Deep down, that's all we feel like we deserve. And that would make sense, given all that we know about ourselves. But this day defies such sense. In the crucifixion, God freely embraces the real cost of love. The cost of giving us, as his beloved, the real freedom to love or to hate him. It will always cost the blood of Jesus to clothe our naked shame. And no other sacrifice can reconcile us to God and make us into his children. God's love is an unimaginable severe mercy. By it he redeems servants by delivering up his only son. And through that son makes of guilty exiles his beloved children. We must allow this mystery to overwhelm us. We must let ourselves be stilled into humility before the real love that comes to us today. That is where we begin. It is not for us this day to scrutinize, but to receive. So, right now, put away all thoughts but the remembrance of how much the Father, the Son, and the Spirit love you. Remember that what we are witnessing today is what is always true, that there is no darkness in which he cannot be near to you, that in that time this past year, when you thought you were most alone, he was there with you. Good Friday means that you are not alone, and that you cannot be alone, and that your shame cannot separate you from the love that you really want and really need. Behold, our Lord, now as he beholds you from the cross in love, as he fulfills all things for us who, having squandered the gift of ourselves, are given ourselves again as a gift. The time will come to understand. Today, we have only to sit together and see him. For as the gospel says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.